Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. This week's podcast is brought to you by Health IQ, a life insurance company that rewards you for getting off the couch and onto your bike. They spent years compiling data on healthy folks like us and are using it to provide special rates on life insurance for health-conscious people. That includes cyclists like you. Get a quote at healthiq.com slash fast talk. So it's well documented that osteopenia, osteoporosis in the, in the chronic cyclist is, is a really dangerous thing. So that off-season is a time for us to hike and run and ski and do some things with impact to stimulate, stimulate our, our skeleton. One day of weightlifting throughout the season can help us maintain um, skeletal strength. But I could name five aspiring young men that, that, that never reached their potential because of osteoporosis before they were 25. So it's a very frightening thought because it's almost irreversible. Welcome back, everybody, to Fast Talk, the Velo News Performance Podcast. I am Kaylee Fretz, sitting right next to, as always, Coach Trevor Connor. We have a good one for you today. Uh, Trevor, what are we talking about? Today we are discussing, because it's the fall, why you as cyclists need an off-season. This is a really big one for me, and we have a a guest here today who is is very much on the same page. So welcome, Dr. Pruitt. Yep, thank you. And... There are so many things you do. How would you you introduce yourself? I'm a multitasker. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I would say that currently I'm the uh, uh, sports medicine consultant to CU Sports Medicine and Performance Center, as well as Specialized Bicycles. Um, I do a lot of... um, Oh, my, my, I guess my real emphasis these days, I've retired from clinical practice, but I still do a lot of biomechanical um, analysis, a lot of injury prevention, product design, work with three different pro tour teams, you know, some um, retired, but not. <laughs> yeah, I would say not. So I was getting a bike fit this morning and all year I've been dealing with some back pain that I've seen a bunch of doctors for and nobody can help me. So Dr. Pruitt walked in in the middle of my uh, bike fit, just goes, Trevor, get off the bike. Starts feeling around on my back. And I go, so you have any idea what's going on? So, yeah, you got arthritis at your L5. And just tells me everything I need to do and what's wrong. And in two minutes, he figured out what uh, what I haven't solved in six months. It's like magic. Yeah. That, that's, yeah. <laughs> it's all in the touch. <laughs> so we are very excited to, to have this conversation with Dr. Pro because he is all about keeping your body functional, which is something that's very important. We're also going to hear from two other um, cyclists. Dwayne Tuck will talk to us a little bit about cross-training, and Ted King is going to talk about why he likes to get off the bike in the off-season. So this is a good one. This is an important one. We're excited, so let's make you fast. So let me start with whenever I tell athletes, or a lot of times when I tell athletes that they need to take some time off the bike in the off-season, I get that, but I'll lose my fitness. And I actually pulled this out. I, I found my old exercise physiology textbooks. Um, from 15 years ago now, that's scary, Um, and looked at what it said in terms of detraining, and it had all these horrible statistics like your VO2 max drops uh, drops 7% in 12 days, Uh, stroke volume, which is an important adaptation, drops 11% in 12 days, your mitochondrial activity drops 50% uh, in just a week. It's just this grim picture that if you get off the bike, you are going to be getting beat by your grandma within a, within a week's time. Also interesting, uh, well-respected physiologist Ronstadt recently published a study in 2014 saying that 
cyclists seem to reach the season in better shape if they did some high-intensity intervals about every 7 to 10 days during their off-season. So there are certainly a lot of arguments out there that you shouldn't get off the bike, you shouldn't stop training. We don't agree. So, Dr. Pruitt, why don't we hand over to you quickly and say... Give some thoughts on, on why not. Well, if I was to flip your notebook that you were just reading from, I was to flip it over. Uh, the other side of that is, yes, there are some physiological changes that happen rather quickly. But the other question is, how quickly do you get them back once you resume training? So there's not a great cost, in, in my experience, to taking the time off. And the upside is mental freshness. The off-season gives you a chance to... to um, work on necessary things. You, you talk about your back, Trevor. You know, this off-season, that's going to be your assignment. That's going to be your assignment to totally solve your back issue so that when you get back on the bike, whatever your desired off time is, whether that be six weeks or eight weeks, you get back on your bike, your, your, your back injury is resolved. Mental freshness, I think, is a huge piece of the off-season. It's just, it's just so important. Now, does the off-season mean that you can't be active? Not at all. You can do those high-intensity intervals that you mentioned doing a totally different sport, whether that be running, swimming, Nordic skiing, rollerblading. You can use a whole different musculoskeletal system that does require cardiovascular work to maintain a lot of those cardiovascular physiological changes that you don't want to have negative. You can, you can fight that battle doing other activities and keep that freshness. So you brought up an interesting point or question of how quickly do those adaptations come back? I've certainly seen some some research on that. What has been your experience? Well, I, I can't quote the research. I've not looked at it recently. But um, in my feeling, I think that we don't lose significant physiological abilities for about 20 days of, of non-existence. So the guy gets hurt, right? He's laid up in the hospital for seven days. He gradually gets back on his bike the next seven days. And wham, you know, he comes back fresh. He does a few intervals, does a couple um, layers of base, and he's right back where he was before he got injured. So I think they come back really, really fast. What happens, in my experience, is that we lose our pain tolerance, both mentally and physiologically, to hard work, right? You still have the motor. The motor didn't change that much, but you just you, you don't have that pain tolerance to lactic acid and all the other the other, the other factors. So I think at 20 days... You really haven't lost much except for your pain tolerance. If you, during that 20 days, are doing one set of intensive exercise every seven days, you're probably not even going to lose, lose that. In that time, though, so if we're talking about, you know, what, beginning of November-ish, it's going gonna, it's gonna to depend on how everyone structured their season, whether you're racing cyclocross, things like that. Whenever that time is, you're going to take your, your two or three weeks off. I mean, what do you lose? You said you, lo- you lose a bit of sort of pain tolerance right. and things like that but there must be some physiological change i mean anybody who's ever been off really? the bike for a little while you get back on you feel a little bit crap why exactly is that maybe we dig into that before we talk about why those things don't matter so much so let me throw a theory i've been forming based on a lot of the reading i've done at you and dr Pruitt, please mm. feel free to call bs on me on this i'll call bs on you trevor you do that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> used to that. And, and i'm trying to think of better terms for this 
But I personally believe there, there are two main categories of, of adaptations. And the old literature, they used to talk about central versus peripheral adaptations, and that's starting to get thrown out. What are those, just real quick? Um, so central being when you're talking about oxygen delivery, you know, how well your heart can pump blood, that sort of thing. Peripheral is what's going on with the muscles, that ability to take up the oxygen and, and use the oxygen to, to do work, its ability to use substrates for fuel. That sort of thing. The theory being that the central things stick around longer when you start to detrain. Right? Well, they're used. If you go really back, they used to believe base training trained your your central conditioning, mm-hmm. and that the high intensity trained your peripheral. Gotcha. And, and like I said, there's been a, a lot that's come out since that's saying nah, it isn't so nicely divided. Um, I personally, what what I feel I've been seeing is much more. There are structural changes. And there are what I'm, and this is where I'm trying to find a better term, more biochemical changes and enzymatic changes. And that's even when you talk about losing your ability to, to tolerate the pain, mm-hmm. your, your catecholamines are your natural right. painkillers, right. and they just disappear when you stop training. So all of a sudden, it's not that your body is suddenly hurting more, it's just your body isn't masking that pain Correct. That, that, that's my whole point. It's not masking it. Yeah, but the, but the motor is still intact. So basically your body sort of creates its own Advil and it stops creating its own Advil when you get off the bike for a while? Exactly. Okay. But one of the issues with those catecholamines is they actually hamper tissue repair. So if you're trying to get your body put back together, you've done a lot of damage with a lot of racing, it's actually good to clear those catecholamines out and let your body rebuild it just hurts when you ride your bike. Exactly right. What else What else are we losing? I mean, are we losing any of these things that we used to call central conditioning? Is any of that stuff really going away? So going, let's go back to this distinction of the biochemical versus the, the structural. And so the example I give, this is probably getting quite technical. So let me give you a visual. One of the biggest adaptations that, that you see in endurance athletes is stroke volume, which is basically how much blood can your heart pump per beat? Our bodies have two ways to improve stroke volume. One is to basically increase the size of the left ventricle of your heart so that it can fill up with more blood and and pump more blood. It's like making a bigger bellow. The other way is to increase your blood volume so that it's like putting your thumb on the end of a hose. You now have more pressure in there, and you're going to push more blood through the heart with, with each beat. So that increased blood volume, I think of as more of that biochemical change, the the increase in the size of your heart is the structural change. Problem is a lot of these more biochemical changes are a real stressor on your body. Your body doesn't necessarily like them. It prefers the structural changes. My belief is that when you get off the bike for a bit, those biochemical changes are the ones that disappear. So they've even shown that in the literature that your blood volume is going to return to normal in about a week. Right. The structural changes, they did a study with Tour de France athletes who stopped cycling, and 10 years later, they still had that increased heart. Hmm. So the big changes, the ones that take years to develop, you get off the bike, they're not changing. Right. So I don't think those things happen totally in in separate silos, right? They happen simultaneously. But I do believe that the physical changes, the ventricle musculature, is a lifelong um, asset that you've earned, the stroke or the, the fluid volume comes and goes. I mean, the way we gain and lose weight so quickly as athletes, a lot of that is fluid volume. So you finish a stage race for a couple of days, you might have 
in, you might have gained, oh my God, I gained weight during this three-day stage race. No, you didn't. You gained fluid volume and you're going to pee it away over the next next 48 hours and all of a sudden you're you're back to where you are. So the fluid volume can go up and down as the body needs. Absolutely. From like an evolutionary perspective, are these the sort of things that they're just responses to short-term stress, right? They're our body's response to something really bad happening, which actually that's what training is, right? It's your body's terrified, uh, trying to figure out how to make itself better at, at doing this thing that you're trying to make it do. And that's why they go away so quickly because they are, they're essentially, they're designed to be temporary measures. To the, the way I think of it is if you start putting these stresses on your body, again, it goes back to, we weren't designed for sports. We were designed for hunting and running away, right. running away from lions. So if you're putting your body through a lot of strain, it's saying, okay, I've got to improve you in the long term so that you can handle this and, and permanently handle this. But in the meantime, I got to make sure that a lion doesn't eat me. So I got to figure out some very quick way that I don't like as much to bring about these adaptations while I do the longer term structural change. Which includes the natural body ad bill that I can't pronounce, right? Yes. Yes. Cool. So just making sure I understand all of this. You know, I looked at a couple studies this morning. And when you look at the structural changes, I mean, I found one review from 2012 in the European Journal of Physiology that said straight out. No detraining effect in structural adaptations. That's actually a quote from the study. Right. And they go on, another one goes on to say um, no real drop in muscle capillarization. The, the, here's one for you, Kayla. The ABO2 difference <laughs> remains for about three ah, weeks. The, the ABO2 the, difference. Right. And I can keep going through <laughs> the muscle fiber distribution, no real change. All these structural things, you don't have to worry too much about what these are, but all these structural changes, you can get off the bike, they're not. They have some resistance. You really don't see them dissipate. They have they have significant longevity for sure. It, the 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 athlete's heart, this enlarged ventricle. You know, it, it, we didn't understand not that many decades ago that we didn't really understand it. I remember um, Davis Finney came to see me back in the back in the uh, early '80s, and he'd broken a rib, and I and I threw up his X-ray up on the the view box, and you know. The, the the vultures gathered quickly to look at uh, Davis's broken rib, and one of my colleagues said, "My God, look at his heart! Call the cardiologist. This is dangerous." Not dangerous at all. It was Davis Finn. He had just a gigantic heart, <laughs> and he still got it today, right? So uh, we didn't understand that enlarged heart was a good thing. It was a good adaptation. We now understand that it is a good adaptation. I guarantee you that if we X-ray Davis today at age fifty, late fifties, um, I guarantee you his heart looks the same. As it, as it did back 30 years ago. So this brings us to the purpose of an off-season, which we've kind of touched on a little bit already. It sounds like, to me, one of the big reasons you do this is to kind of allow your body to get rid of some of these temporary uh, temporary improvements, we can call them, I guess, uh, from, from an athletic perspective. What are the other reasons why athletes really do need to take time off? A good athlete has an addictive personality. They're, they're addicted to their routine. They're addicted to their exercise. And so we got you know, we got to be careful just to take them off their bike, right? And they're, they're going to revolt. So they can ride their bike. They can still do low-level base training throughout this process. And then that'll help actually flush out some of these bad biomechanical things that we kind of want to rid ourselves of. So continuing to do a low-level base training, that, that's acceptable. Two or three days a week, go ride your bike. So they don't have feel like they're we've taken their cocaine away from them. Um, <laughs> I think it's an important time to heal, right, to address things that you have not been able to address during a busy training and racing season. It's crucial. So you get some mental freshness. You get some chance to take care of your injuries. Biggest part for me is to 
maybe exploit a weakness and really drill into it. So your sprint was falling off at the end of the season. Hey, go to the gym. Just build those glutes. Just build build those explosive muscles, which you don't want to do during the season because it detracts that soreness you would get from the gym, which is going to detract from your training program. So using the offseason for mental freshness to zero in and and fix injuries and zero in to fix weaknesses uh, that are going to make you a better cyclist in the long run, to me, that, that that's all the argument that I would need. Leave science behind. I mean, that mm-hmm. that to me, that's science supports that argument. For me, that's that's those are the important things. Because we are humans, after all, we're absolutely not just robots, not yeah. athletic robots. You know, you know, we're talking, talking about physiological changes and 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 biomechanical bio, uh, biochemical changes. We didn't talk about the skeleton. Yes. And cycling is well documented in. in causing some osteoporotic changes, some bone density changes. So it's a non-weight-bearing activity without a heel strike, without impact. So it's well documented that osteopenia, osteoporosis in the in the chronic cyclist is, is a really dangerous thing. So that off-season is a time for us to hike and run and ski and do some things with impact to stimulate, um, stimulate our, our skeleton. One day of weightlifting throughout the season uh, can help us maintain um, skeletal strength. Uh, I, 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 could, I can't because of confidentiality, but I could name five uh, aspiring young men that, that that never reached their potential because of osteoporosis mm-hmm. before they were 25. So it's a yeah. very frightening thought because it's almost irreversible without without medicines. So let's keep our skeleton strong out there uh, for you cyclists. Absolutely. So again, being older, I still haven't been great about it lately, as Dr. Pruitt can say, but I used to be very good about two, three times a week. I'd get off my bike. I wouldn't even get out of my cycling clothes. I'd yep. just throw on my running shoes. And I do five minutes of, of lunge jumps. I do five yep. minutes of jumping jacks. All these things just to get that yep. impact. Yep. Yep. So this would actually be a good time for us to hear from Ted King, who is a pro tour rider with what team is he with now, Kelly? He's retired. Okay, he's a pro tour rider with nobody, but he was a pro tour rider. <laughs> I would say he's just retired. Thank you for keeping, keeping me up to date. But I talked to Ted a couple of years ago about an off season, and here's a top level cyclist who talked about why it was so important for him to get off the bike. So let's hear from him quickly. I mean, for sure, I'll take a few weeks off. I mean, a lot of it is going to depend on the race calendar, for one. So typically I'm done racing um, in late September. And then I'm typically back on the bike training for the following season by earlier mid-November. Um, which obviously then sees the month of October as a big chunk of time off, which at the pro tour level is uh, an entire month is maybe par for the course or a little bit long. Do you find with that month off, when you get back on the bike, do you notice any change in your fitness or do you find that that month really doesn't affect you? Yeah, you most obviously notice a difference. If you look at the your fitness on a scale, or you know, sort of a, as waves or peaks, you know, your fitness is going to be peaked at a certain point. Like call it, whether you're peaking for July or or you know, the spring races, Tour California, or whatever it is, you feel like you're flying on a bike, and you obviously are. You're producing better numbers than you ever have. You're light, you're fit, and then in the off season, you lose a great deal of that. I mean, without sounding like an ass. You know, inevitably your form and fitness is going to be a world of difference between the first time you're riding for that next season and the peak of the season. 
So what do you notice? Uh, are, are there any signs that you notice when you get out on that first ride that just says, wow, something's happened? You know, changes in heart rate, changes in power, besides the obvious drop in your power, any different feel in your legs, that sort of thing? You're pretty darn refreshed, so your heart rate's going to be more ewy spiked. I mean, and that's like that's sort of a personal physiological thing. You know, for some people, it's, it's really noticeable. Um, for other people, their heart rate won't be as lethargic in the off or in the season. But also in the month of November, when you're getting back into it, you're not really um, you're not putting your body through the super high rigors of of mid season training. So you know, you're not going to do threshold intervals in the first week of November. Right. And therefore, you're not really testing those power outputs. You just you incrementally build back up. One of the, the key questions here is if you, you do see that drop in fitness, what are your reasons for, for getting off the bike even for a month before easing back in? To, to say refreshed, I guess, is the best overall answer. You know, it's refreshing for your body, mind, soul. It keeps you from burning out. I guess, I mean, towards the end of the season, towards uh, August, September, you're really looking forward to that time off the bike. I mean, physiologically, they, I'm no race doctor, but they also say that it shows considerable returns to, to have an off-season, to, to stay refreshed, to, you know, you're not going to peak unless you also take the rest time. Otherwise, you're just sort of cruising around at 75% of your capability all the time. So when you're taking that month off, what do you typically do during it? And what would you recommend to the uh, the readers to do, um, both for the mental and the physical side? I would recommend eating that slice of cake. I would recommend taking your mind completely off the bike. I mean, don't, there are people who are going to obsess about it. They're like oh, my God, this is the off-season. I didn't ride today. I mean, people, you know, you see that with injury, too. Um, if you have a mid-season injury, people often will start to freak out that they're, you know, losing fitness by the hour. But if you've built up a proper base, then you're not really going to be at risk, um, you know, as badly as a crazed cyclist's mind thinks. So, yeah, I mean, don't think about... You should actively think about not thinking about the bike, if that makes any sense. What else? Yeah, I mean, at the same time, I mean, to a degree, stay active. I mean, a lot of people go hiking, go skiing, go... Um, I mean, I'm from New England, play some hockey. Um, and it's sort of person-to-person at the, at the this level. I mean, some guys will take the time off entirely and just be a slug. And other people will. Um, you see plenty of people who are still obsessed about the fitness. And so maybe they're not riding their bike every day before they're hiking for three hours a day, which is a little bit nutty. Is there anything in particular that, that you focus on? You just kind of have fun, do what you want to do, or do you try to get in the weight and try to do anything like that? Mm, I I don't. I mean, coming from a hockey background, I've spent the first handful of years of my career um, actually trying to lose weight because I was, you know, I was trying to lose muscle mass. Um, and that, I mean, a lot of that is just going to come down to your coach's perspective, whether you should be in the gym or not. Um, 
I'm not a coach. I don't want to tell people to do it if they want to or not. Right. Um, I think it's a perfectly good idea, and if they want to do it, go for it. I guess the biggest thing I would stress in the offseason is to have fun. I mean, not to say that the in-season is not fun, but it's like it's that one you know, wide open sort of tabula rasa time to, to do whatever you want. I mean, within within a modicum of reason, I mean, don't go eating up entire cake every day, but, you know, have fun, go for the hike, go for that, I don't know. <laughs> Basically, relax. Get the, uh, get yeah, the out of your in head. so many words, chill the f*** out, you know. I mean, there are so many people obsessed about the sport, and it's like, it's so goofy. And I mean, there are plenty of people who keep it within reason, but there are all too many who do really obsess about it. And it's like, don't use the scale. Just have a good time. At the end of the time, at the end of the day, you're riding a bike, so can't take yourself too seriously. So when you hit the end of that off season and you're you're getting back into the training again, what would you recommend, and what do you do once you get back on the bike? Yeah, I mean it's a, it's a I I hate giving training advice to be honest. I mean because I think I think anybody who takes cycling seriously should use and I think that that's you know it's basically at that point between the the rider and the coach. So just on on a generic scale, I mean do try to do plyometrics or something if you've been completely lazy and you haven't done anything to get your body ready for the rigors of of riding a bike again. You know, you don't want to jump back into it full bore and be an idiot and give yourself tendonitis. You know, the offseason is also an awesome time to, to work out any kinks that you have had in the season. Maybe you haven't had a knee injury, but you've had sort of a nagging sensation or something weird that just doesn't feel right in your knee, in your hip, wherever. So, you know, that's an awesome time to go see the cycling gurus, the Andy Pruitts of the world, and, and yep. sort that out. It's a really good time to get, you know, new cycling orthotics if you need that or work on a position thing because, you know, you're going to, when you start ramping it up again, um, just the volume and everything, you want to do it correctly off the bat rather than being two weeks in and, and making a considerable change. Good point. I like to think so. <laughs> yeah, so it sounds it sounds like Ted and Dr. Pruitt are basically in total agreement <laughs> and we did not know that at the time <laughs> yeah, we, we did not know that we, beforehand we uh yeah i mean it, it all those things make make perfect sense to me but trevor i wanted to turn back to you and let's get some scientific basis for some of this i mean this this makes sense from just a logic level and having you know spent a lot of time around athletes and having been one myself all these things make perfect sense but there must be some science behind it as well otherwise otherwise well we, we wouldn't be able to sort of prove that it was so effective that which is a really good question for me, the science, and this is more a theory that I would love to test, but it goes back to that structural versus the peripheral changes, or the structural versus the biochemical changes, which is our bodies also have a bit of a, a laziness factor. They like to do whatever is easiest and simplest, and the biochemical changes are easiest and simplest. And when we are doing a lot of high-intensity work and we have those catecholamines flowing, Keep it an is, what's that? The Advil. The Advil. <laughs> Our bodies aren't going to be able to repair tissue as well. They are going to be more inclined to say, let's keep pushing those biochemical adaptations. And sorry, taking a quick step back, the issue with those biochemical adaptations is they are what push burnout. 
Structural adaptations are never going to burn you out, but your body is actually out of balance when you have that mm -hmm. really large blood volume, when you have the catecholamines flowing, when you have this huge enzymatic activity. You are on a timeline. You're going to burn out. So you need to clear all that out so your body's no longer pushing burnout. You need to get clear out the catecholamines. So when you go for a ride and somebody sprints you for a town line side, you go, oh, that hurt. <laughs> Because then your body's going to be more prone to say, let's do this, the structural changes. Hmm. There is, I, I have seen science behind that, but that's as much my theory. Uh, it's my theory based on the science I have been reading. Hmm. And it's what I tell my athletes. In the off-season, or you know, during the off-season, they need to clear it out. And then during the base season, really what I want them to do is go out and ride. And I say, you know, if you did a hard effort right now, would it really hurt? And they go, yeah. Good, you're where you need to be. Right. You've rested. That tells me they've rested. Going back to Ted's point, 75%. So you're, you're, you're rolling along through your season, kind of trying to maintain your fitness. Maintaining fitness, that's a very difficult thing to do. Peak fitness, that's even harder. That's all about timing. You try to get all these structural changes and the enzymatic changes to occur and to peak at this very right time for this one event, right? That, that is total peaking. Tour de France, um, uh, the Giro, the Vuelta, any any week-long stage race, even a three-day stage race, you don't peak for those events, right? I mean, you have to bring yourself up to 75 or 80 and try to hold it through those periods of time. So this whole balance of training and rest is, is we do it throughout the season. So why not do it in a bigger form in the off-season so you can really try to think about hitting those peaks? You're basically talking about taking the, the, the concepts that we're all familiar with on a micro level in terms right. of what's, what's right. inside a three-week block. Right. And applying that on a macro level to an entire season. So uh, you were saying this before we turned the microphone on, but yeah, if you if you're taking three to four days off at the end of a hard block, then that 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 extrapolated out to the length of a year is three weeks. Exactly. Right? That's the that's the whole concept. And I'm not sure three weeks. If if I go back to when I first started, you know, the 70s and 80s, there was an actual off season in the pro peloton and the amateur peloton. We we tend to try to mirror those guys in some way, right? The majority of our listeners are going to be 35 to 55 years old. They're not going to ride the tour next year. So I want them to be able to take what we're talking about using the examples of the pro tour and, and, and apply it to themselves, right? So in the old days, we had this off season and it was three months from the world championships in October. They'd, they'd come to camp in January fat and happy. And it took them three – the classics, unless you were a classic specialist, were used to get the guys in shape. And it, it, there's no more though, right? right? I mean the sponsors expect more. But Now for, guys are flying for toe down under, I mean, which is the second week of January. But they're not the same guys flying – in July. <laughs> well, they, in might, the they might fly in July, but they won't be flying in the spring. Right. Which right. we tried to address in a past podcast, which is people try to emulate the pros. And they go, well, the pros are, are going really strong in February. And look at the length of their season. You go, but point out a single pro no. who's going strong that whole time. Right. Teams pay close attention to this. And they know which guys are going to be strong in January and February. And they're not going to be the same guys that are strong in, in March and April. Many of these guys are actually taking a month away from competition with a significant rest in the middle of what we think of as our, our, of our season. But they did the Tour Down Under, maybe a couple other February races. They take the month of March away from the sport. So, yeah. Which, which actually brings to, it brings to mind something that's happened a couple times recently, which is pros who have had some sort of injury or illness in the middle of the season and came back better than they were before. Absolutely. I mean, look at Matthew Heyman, spent like six weeks on a trainer and then one pair of Roubaix. Uh, Fabio Aru has this knee injury, skips the Giro, shows up the Tour de France, 
is flying. Yep. Uh, I mean, it, it, these things, they're, they're essentially, they're proof positive that, that a time off the bike, some time off the bike is not season ending. It's not, it's certainly not career ending, you know. I used to tell patients that, that got injured somehow in the spring or I said, well, this is just perfect. You're going to be flying come world championship time, right? I mean, that's, you're, you're just going to take your clock, take your fitness clock and you're going to turn it, right? It's, it, you're going to change the, the area of the, of the year where you want to be flying. Yeah. You know, season's long enough. Only people it sucks for is cross riders. If you get injured at the wrong time, your season's too short. <laughs> kind of true. So for our listeners, that 35 to 55-year-old guy or gal that wants to race the full road season and they want to do cross for off-season training, wow, your cross is hard. But it's really, really, really intense. So if you if you use the cross season for your road season, man, th- that the only day that you should go hard is Saturday. Yep. And the rest of the week should be in that off-season mode. So maybe some uh, some hard and fast recommendations here. I mean, how long should your average 35 to 55 amateur athlete be taking every year, regardless of where that point is, whether it's in November or whether you're a cross guy and you're taking it in you know, March or whatever? Where should that – how long should that period be where you're not off the bike but you are most certainly not training well uh, geography plays a role here so i spend my time spread between boulder colorado morgan hill california and somewhere in europe (laughs) and and so the weather and the geography play a big role in those athletes the guys in california and arizona they ride year-round right and 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 they have the weather to ride year-round in colorado we have the luxury of having nordic skiing as an outlet or fat biking as a, as a whole new mind clearing, refreshing activity, but it's still, it's still very active, active recovery. So right. um, I think the guys in California have to be far more careful mm-hmm. about being burnt out in January than, than those of us here. So there are, I mean, we're, we are talking about athletes here. We're talking about sort of type A personalities oh, yeah. quite frequently. That was the addiction. I think. <laughs> the addiction you, you spoke of. Exactly. And so, you know, there is the concern of sort of anytime you come off of an addiction is, is some sort of withdrawal. Uh, but so maybe, maybe like, do, do people need to sort of make a rule for themselves and say, I'm just not going to touch a bike with a power meter for the next what, three weeks. I mean, what, what kind of things can we be telling people to do here to make sure that they really get that, and if with an addiction that they actually get uh, withdrawn from from that addiction for a little while. What I do with with the athletes I coach, and so a lot of the the amateur athletes I work with, they tend to race that late March to July or August season. I like to see them in October take at least a week or two completely off the bike, just hang it up. Let's do some other sports, um, and, and let's make sure we talk a bit about cross training here. Mm. I get them back on the bike at the end of October, but what I tell all of them, and this is a a big expression for me, there is nothing you can do in November and December that's going to make you a superstar in May. There is a lot you can do in November and December that's going to make sure you're burnt out by May. So I don't mind my athletes getting back on the bike and starting their training, but let's not be killing ourselves in November. I'd still like to see them do a fair amount of cross training, still enjoy the ride, still do a lot of off the bike type stuff. And really it's in January. Say, okay, now the, the, the serious work really begins. Hmm. Time for one more quick break. We know you, our listeners like to ride. So support the show and check out health IQ's life insurance rate specifically for cyclists. You can get a quote at healthiq.com slash fast talk. 
All right, let's get back to the show. Should we talk about cross-training? Well, I think cross-training is one of my favorite things. I, you, you choose cross-training based on what it's going to do for you. So if cycling is your primary sport, your cross-training activity needs to be something fun, refreshing, that contributes to your primary sport, contributes to cycling, whether that be weightlifting, whether that be alpine skiing, tele-skiing, Nordic skiing, uh, fat biking. Oh, my gosh, what a different sport that is. Right? <laughs> Completely. It's huge strength. It's huge strength. Um, a different stance. It's actually a different musculature in many ways. Uh, so, yeah, I'm a big believer in cross-training. Um, Should riders be looking for something that, for example, like almost anything that works your core is probably a good idea? Is that the kind of thing that people should be looking for? Oh, okay, what a, what a great segue. The, <laughs> the bicycle, we are supported mechanically and structurally on the bicycle. Um, and so our core does not get worked on the bike. But our core is crucial to applying power to the pedals. So if you think about a leg press machine with a back on it, you are really strong as you're pressing it, but your core is not firing. Try to do that same amount of work on a leg press machine without your back supported. Impossible. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So it's the core that is your back support for the bicycle. So the bicycle is nothing but a series of leg presses, right? Three or four hours of leg presses. <laughs> but your core, so that why does my back hurt at three hours? Because your core is not strong enough. Hmm. to maintain that posture and, and give your legs something to push back against. Core is crucial. Hmm. What is core? I suggest you get some uh, – Either there are some really good books out there about core. Um, I think an off-season coach, uh, a good physical therapist, uh, it's a good thing to have. But it's not beach crunches. It's not about your six-pack, really. It's, it's more about – think about my, my two crucial core exercises are planks and side planks. Yeah. Cyclists have to be able to – planks and side planks, and they can actually be done in a hotel room year-round if you're traveling to race. I'm also going to say a really important one is variety. Sure. My, my nephew got really into cycling, and he heard about planks. He got to where he could do a 20-minute, 20 28-minute plank. <laughs> Holy mackerel. He would watch a TV show and plank the entire show. And he ended up getting injured because all he did was planks. <laughs> can you say yes. addictive personality? <laughs> so variety, because there are so many muscles involved in the core. And I agree, plank is, is, is my favorite for cyclists core exercise, but still get variety. Absolutely. And it has to be something more dynamic. That's a very static exercise some some dynamic core work too and that's why if you live up north something like cross-country skiing is fantastic i mean i know that you know i, I was a ski racer in high school and i have i haven't had a core that strong since right. there's no i don't think I, I could think i could spend all day in the gym and i wouldn't have a, a stronger core as when i was a cross-country skier that kind of thing's great if you live in the south where you're not going to have a lot of snow then may, maybe you got to spend a little bit more time in the gym or w what else can people do what other activities are there out there that can that can help okay. the core without without gym time basically before so this, this is a great question for dr Pruitt, but before we answer it take a quick step back a really important thing to remember about cycling is this is a horribly imbalanced sport even when you look at your legs we, we do a huge amount of work with our quads we almost hardly use our hamstrings and it's a very unique sport in that we do virtually no eccentric activity and eccentric work is essential for, for injury prevention, for strengthening muscles. And so a lot of people can, ask me, can what you is define that? There we go. <laughs> so if you think of doing a bicep curl, when you are lifting the weight, that is the concentric motion. That is shortening the muscle. Concentric. Right. Okay. Eccentric is when you are lowering that weight, when the muscle is forcefully lengthening. Interesting. Or, or lengthening with, with tension. 
Um, we are stronger eccentrically, but you do a lot more damage to the muscle with eccentric work. In the short run, that's what causes DOMS, that's what causes muscle soreness. But in the long run, it makes the muscles tougher. They're, they're more it, it helps injury prevention. Hmm. You don't get any of that on the bike. How, no. would you, how would you get it? Where would you find eccentric work? One of my favorites is, again, back to my leg press machine, which I happen to love, is, is an explosive concentric movement with a very slow, controlled eccentric movement. So you explode the legs into extension and then return slowly. And if you've never experienced muscle soreness and you do that a couple of times, you will experience muscle soreness. <laughs> and the muscle soreness, it's a downside, but it is really an upside because it does build strength and and durability to muscles it's a good hurt it's a good hurt yeah. yep, right yep. but it, what the problem with delayed onset muscle soreness is what you you referred to as doms is that people go oh my god it was so sore i'm not gonna do that again well you need to do it repetitively and over time so do it get over it do it again it'll take you less time to get over it do it again and pretty soon you're able to repeat those activities and not get that muscle right not to go too far down a rabbit hole, but isn't some of that neuromuscular as well? Absolutely. It's essentially like your body. Your body learns how to not Absolutely. fight itself when Absolutely. you're doing those things. So yeah, it does. It, 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 as a result, it actually goes away very quickly because it's just teaching those pathways. It's not even necessarily making the leg all that stronger. Has gains for the bike. So I'm actually uh, I'm submitting today an article on the difference between efficiency and economy. And so I was reading a bunch of studies on efficiency, and they have shown that you can actually. Riding a bike, just riding a bike will not improve your efficiency. Adding weight training to your cycling will. So cross training, vital. Go cross country skiing, hit the gym. A couple other things that people can do. I mean, go for a hike, pretty much anything, right? Absolutely. And actually, if you so hike uphill aggressively, come downhill slowly. It's kind of, that's the leg press with a slow return. It's also better for your knees to do that, but you'll build up that muscle durability. Plyometrics. I think plyometrics are, especially for this sprint aspect of what we do, plyometrics are crucial. That's explosive activities, but they are very dangerous to do. So you need help. You need coaching. You need a partner. Um, and actually the partner brings me back to that guy in the south that doesn't have the snow to go, you know, if, if he get a, if he gets an off-season training partner, they can work the medicine balls. There's so many things you can do with a partner, and you get that social aspect that you're missing on that group bike ride. Right, a little bit easier to get through a core workout when you got somebody else to push you along. Yes, we used to do we used to do Trevor's terrible Tuesdays back when uh, back when I was a CSU student. And Trevor was our coach. I remember those days. Those were good days. I was very sore from those. An hour and a half <laughs> session that I, we called plyometrics, but the fact of the matter was there was only actually about five minutes of plyometrics. Right. It was core work. It was all around conditioning. And yeah, if you remember, when I introduced it to, to CSU Cycling, everybody was like, why do we want to do this? We just want to ride our bikes. Um, I you know, stood up. So we had, what, 50 people in the room? Yep. I stood up in front of them and said, here's why you do it. Put up your hand if you have had a, a knee injury or an overuse injury from riding your bike. And I would say of the 50 people in the room, probably 30 put up their hand. And I went, you're all 20 years old. Over half of you put up your hand. I'm 40. I've never had an overuse injury. This is why you do it. There you go. Unfortunately, as of this morning, I can also have an overuse injury. But back when I was 39, well. <laughs> And those were great sessions. They, they, they definitely there, there's some value to you know we used to we used to play handball like we you know all sorts of different things. There was a lot of fun in those as well, and that's definitely sort of that's the kind of thing that you can put together with you know everyone out there with a cycling team. Get your friends together, 
go do some plyometrics together, get a partner, do some core work, Be you know, have some fun. The, as Dr. Pro said, with the plyometrics, yeah. unless you have somebody who is certified who can show you how to do it. Right. I agree. But general conditioning. So one of my favorites, because they're very safe, is lunge walks. They're hard. <laughs> well, they, you feel them the next day. Yep. But they're good. Yep. So cross-country skiing, lunge walks, plyometrics, go for a hike, walk down slowly. The guy down south... I know rollerblading roller blading is not cool right now, but it works the, the gluteus medius just like Nordic skiing does. And the gluteus medius, this little sidewall of your, of, your, of your butt, if you will, is so crucial to avoiding knee injury. It, it, it helps stabilize the knee in a vertical manner while we're pedaling. So that, that side movement, soccer, is another great uh, strengthener for gluteus medius. Um, I need some of that. <laughs> yeah. It's actually a, a great segue to um, our conversation with Swain Tuft, who, hmm. like me, is a little bit older a cyclist. But unlike me, he can still go to the Tour de France and sit on the front of the field and make everybody hurt. Just signed another World Tour contract. And he loves roller skiing. Hmm. So let's hear from Swain. Yeah, well, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of doing other things than biking. So. Yeah, it's something that really, uh, I really try and, if I talk to any of the young guys, it's definitely something that I try and push. Well, I, I just think cycling is, it's one where we're kind of, in order, like at this level to compete, you kind of become obsessive about it. And it takes up like all of your time. So I think there's that mental aspect that, that becomes quite unhealthy, the, the connection to, to our sport that way. And then there's there's the physical aspect that I think we lose so much of uh, kind of range of motion and just general strength through just doing such a symmetrical like you know it's just like you're on a on a track and you don't have any like other function than just the the thing that you've perfected the most which is your pedal stroke and I think like that's necessary to be you know one of the whatever you're trying to achieve in cycling, but at the same time, do that over a long, long uh, career and you essentially become useless. You lose your posture and, you know, your bone density drops and there's a whole <laughs> list of things, you know, when you're young, you don't think about or care about, you know, when you're 20 years old and you, you just you think that'll never happen. But uh, as you age, you start to realize how much these things affect you, but it's also, it's just preventing injuries. You know, if you're strong and robust, you have a nice long distant season, right? And uh, that's, that's the big difference. That's all. So do you think all sports then are, are kind of equal or are there some that you find are, are better for this than others? Or are there certain movements that they should be looking for? Uh, I think, in many ways, like there's not one that's better than the other. I think they all have their their pluses and minuses. But uh, I personally, I love like uh, backcountry ski touring and cross country skiing and stuff like this. I think because these things kind of work uh, a lot of the different muscles that get weakened in your legs in, in cycling. You know? so they uh, they work your glutes and your hamstrings, and and it's kind of like the opposite what we do in cycling and i think that's really important to again going back to the injury prevention you, you just kind of uh, allow your body to balance over the, the fall and the winter just give you a good 
kind of base and foundation for the, the coming season. And yeah, by, you know, maybe by end of July, August, you'll, you'll be whittled down again and kind of running on reserves. But, uh, I think you do yourself a huge favor in, in uh, that process. Do you continue to cross train when you're even getting into the season and getting into the base season? Yeah, like, I mean, this year is a little different because I have, I have a lot of time off and I'm really going to limit my time on the bike. Um, you know, I'll, I'll mountain bike for fun and, and I really won't get uh, serious until January, which is very different for me over the past years. But, uh, uh, my big emphasis will be on doing many other things. Like, uh, I do a lot of roller skiing when the snow's not there yet and hiking and, and uh, climbing. Yeah, I just have a lot of other things on the scoop and be going to the gym and just really mixing it up. And saying that, I always keep busy. So it's not like I'm just hanging out. You know, where I live, you can just hike right from the back door. So every day is kind of on some, some good mission. So cardiovascularly, you, you stay quite strong. And then when you make that transition to the bike, it's going to hurt for the first uh, couple of weeks. But I find when you when you stay on top of all of these other things, you, you, you stick it out very quickly. Do you continue any of it through the season, or at that point are you racing and training so hard on the bike it's just not a possibility? Yeah, you know, I try, like, especially the first part of the season where it's still fresh, I, I try and keep it mixed and and, and stay at it. Um, this year I was injured a lot, and that was kind of the key for me to be able to get back uh, for the Tour de France because I normally would have never been able to, but I uh, I just hike like a madman stay up in the high country the whole time and, and uh, I think that really allowed me to for one stay focused on, on what I had to do to, to be ready but also it just kept me physically in, uh, in good shape so that when I was able to get back on the bike it just came came back right away so I think again like I had that foundation so it wasn't hard on my body to to make so I crashed and broke, yep. broke my wrist and my, uh, my sternum Ouch. and uh yeah, so I was like, you know, a lot of times you can't do much for the first little while, but I was able to move and, and hike, so I just, I just did that. And then, uh, because I've done so much in the in the spring and the and the winter and the fall, I had that base, so I wasn't like struggling to to walk all day or whatever. It was a big pack and all that stuff. So yeah, I think it's I think it's really to just keep touching up on it throughout the season. Uh, just just so the muscles stay somewhat uh, in tone for 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 that kind of exercise as well, because then you you I think it's also crucial throughout the season to do load bearing stuff. If you can stay walking and doing these other things, it's really really important. I think it's it's really good to keep up weightlifting and walking and all these things during the season, just so you don't have such a big gap in in. Uh, in kind of keeping your posture aligned and and your bone density up too, especially as you as you get older, you know, because all those things start to uh, degrade much quicker. And and cycling's probably like just cycling's probably one of the worst things you can do. Um, any other things you'd want to tell the readers for for this piece? Yeah, I think really, I mean, the the biggest thing though, or like over all that stuff, is like <laughs> bone density and and injury prevention and it's the biggest thing is just like do something that you love and enjoy like and and that's totally different from what you do on the bike because that's the most important to come back 
when you get on the bike, you're excited again instead of like, oh, geez, I got to do these intervals or whatever. Like, really, just just switch off from all that crap and, and enjoy your, your time when you when you can because uh, the season's long and, and uh, <laughs> you drive yourself yeah. crazy. Just always stuck in that same mentality of, of uh, trying to achieve numbers and all this other bullshit. Swain also likes bear hunting and <laughs> cave dwelling and barefoot. I, I remember he told uh, he told Andrew Hood one time about his morning Giordatalia ritual, which was to to leave the hotel room in the morning before the bike race, no shoes, and just like walk out into the woods and just walk around for like an hour and then come back. This is in the middle of a grand tour. He's going for hikes barefoot in the middle of the woods. Swain and I trained at the same center, and he was on Saturn. And they would have a training camp in California in March. So his preparation was he would get one of those kid things that you put on the back of your bike that has his own wheels that kind of falls behind. Put his dog and his clothing in there. And then he would bike from British Columbia down to California with this 80-pound thing on the back of his bike. And that was his winter training. There's some base miles. <laughs> and strength. Trevor, what are, the, what are the takeaways for us? So, I mean, I'm kind of focusing on what happened to me this morning because I used to be the guy who didn't get injured and had issues because I focused so much time on off the bike. And I know in the last four or five years, if I, as I've gotten busier with work, I have fallen into that bear trap of I've only got this much time I'm going to spend on the bike and I've let the other stuff slide. And this morning was a wake-up call of you're, you're, you're not going to be walking in 10 years if you keep this up. So... It's you need that off season, as Dr. Pruitt said, and, and that's what I'm going to do of uh, focus on get that body healthy. And I do think you need to do a lot of work that isn't cycling specific to get the body back in balance. Work those muscles you don't work on the yep. bike. Work all those things that ha have weakened or been injured. And when you get back on the bike and continue it through November and December, even when you're you're back to training, so by the time you're getting to the season, you have a healthy body. You know, everybody's focused on what do I need to do to get stronger? Well, I can tell you, if your body's falling apart, you're getting weaker. So you need to keep the body together. The, the, the take home for me is mental freshness and physical freshness that comes with time off. Those two things are incredibly important. But the, the real key for me is, like for Trevor, to, to have the time to focus on his rehabilitation for his low back and to concentrate on what didn't really go well this last season. It was off my sprint a little bit. I'm going to spend my, my off-season working on things that are going to help my sprint. Fix my injuries, help my weaknesses, mental freshness, physical freshness. Well, there you have it. Why do you need an off-season for all of the reasons we just talked about for 43 minutes <laughs> or more? Uh, I think the major point here is don't be scared to be off the bike. I, I, that's that's where we started today, and I think that's where we'll where we'll finish. Is too many athletes, too many cyclists are scared to be off the bike because they're worried about how slow they'll be when they get back on. The reality is, you're not going to be that much slower. It might hurt a little bit. You're not going to be that much slower, and you can use that time to really improve yourself as an athlete, yourself as a cyclist for the entire rest of the season. Well, that was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. You can email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. You can subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. 
While you're there, check out our sister podcast, The Vela News Podcast, which covers news about the week in cycling. You can also hear me share my brilliant thoughts on that one as well. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash velanewsmagazine and on Twitter at twitter.com slash velanews. Fast Talk is a joint production between Velanews and Connor Coaching. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Trevor Connor and Dr. Pruitt, I am Kaylee Fretz. Thanks for listening.